Hi guys and welcome back to the latest episode of the Back to Gold podcast. My name is Cameron Smith and I'll be your host as ever. And joining me as ever in a slightly delayed Back to Gold podcast is my co-host Jamie Monks. Jamie, how are you doing today? Yeah, brilliant Cam, you know, just had a weekend at home. Re- really pleased to you know, finally get away from you for a <laughs> sustained period of time. That, that brought me a lot of joy, a lot of golf, a lot of fun. But now we're back and we're ready to talk into some footy. Yeah, obviously, um, yeah, you went home, so that's why this will be released on a Wednesday rather than the aim, which is a Monday. Um, but no, no dramas. Um, we'll get stuck into the weekend's action. Obviously, we're recording this on Tuesday night, so we've watched a little bit of um, the evening games today. Um, there's still a few going on right now, but we'll we'll talk about a few that have happened this evening if they relate to the weekend's game. But it will mostly be focused on the weekend itself. And speaking of the weekend, what better place to start than your game of the weekend? We'll get stuck in. We will get stuck in, and we'll get stuck in with a lovely Napoli win again. 2-1 against Atalanta. That was one of the you know the big games of the weekend. It was second versus first at one point. Obviously, you know Atalanta dropping to third in the table now, and Napoli went one 0 down, which you know we don't really see very often. And they bounced back immediately in in, in the same half. Goals and assists from a, a goal and an assist from uh, Victor Osimhen. Uh, and now they're six, point cl- six points clear. Yeah, impressive stuff from Spalletti's men. He looked pretty imperious right now. And yeah, like you say, it was going 1-0 down. It's something we don't normally see with them. We normally see them sort of blow teams away. So nice to see them have that side to their game where they can go 1-0 down and they can sort of fight back really, wasn't it? Mm. Yeah, no, especially after losing that um, that unbeaten unbeaten run uh, against Liverpool in midweek. It was mm-hmm. good to, you know, get a good response. And, you know, going 1-0 down to Luckman's penalty was... Not not the ideal way to start, but straight away Osimhen sort of drags them back, in, in, you know where they should be, which is you know on on top of the league. Yeah, and obviously Krautskelia missing. Mm. Um, Looking for his car. I think. Yeah, <laughs> big for Napoli to show they can win without him. He's been mm. sort of a talismanic figure for for Napoli this season. So obviously Elmas came in um, on that left hand side and. Slotted in all right, and I think that he yeah, obviously scored in the game, and so slightly showing, fortuitous with the yeah. with the deflection that sort of takes it over mm-hmm. over the keeper. But it's nice to see that they've got depth, like we've mentioned before, um, in forward areas. And even though an injury to or you know Kratzky being out is something that you'd expect to hamper them against Atalanta, who are one of the you know the best teams in Serie A this season, they've still got to get the win. So massive for Napoli and especially for their title charge. Um, and we'll go on to, to my game of the weekend, which is also in Serie A, uh, and it's Juventus's 2-0 win over Inter. A massive win for Allegri. Obviously, Juve have been criticised heavily this season for their approach to games and their form, really, because they've looked pretty dire at times and been really hard to watch, really. Um, and Allegri is faced a lot of criticism for that, faced a lot of stick. I mean, we've spoken about on this podcast before in terms of, is he the right man for that job? Um, was, you know, going back to Allegri the right decision for Juventus? And so far, it's not quite looked like it was. But this game was the, the start, really. Uh, some signs of positivity for Juventus. Obviously, a 2-0 win. Um, and perhaps Allegri's found a system with, you know, a 3-5-2, I guess, with Moretti playing just off Milik. Um Having Danilo and Alexandra as wide centre backs, Quadrado and Kostic as wing backs, um, it's seeming like it's working. Obviously, with Fagioli Moretti, the academy, you know, prospects playing, it's obviously going to have the fans on side, isn't it? When you play your youngsters, yeah. I mean, that that is sometimes what can happen uh, to sort of revitalise the season. You sort of you fall back onto onto players and academy players who you know really care about the club. I mean, we, we saw it, you know, a few seasons ago when you know Saka and Emil Smith Rowe sort of uh, first burst onto the scene with Arsenal. It sort of 
re-sparks Arteta's Arsenal career. And you know, could the same happen with Allegri at Juve? Yeah, obviously it was a, a very good game uh, tucked into this one rather than uh, Marseille-Lyon, which was happening at the same time on Sunday evening, unfortunately. And I was glad I picked this game because... Um, you know, really enjoyed it. I thought Juventus were actually good to watch for once, which is not quite something I'd uh, you know say before. And I'll get on to my player of the weekend in a bit when we come to that section. But it is from this game, and I think Inter were, you know, a little bit unlucky. They played quite well, but Juventus were, you know, finally managed to ground out a win against a big team, which has sometimes been their undoing, really. And I think that it's you know could kickstart their season. And you know that Champions League spot is you know by no means gone. And if Juventus can, you know, keep this up, then, you know, who knows what could happen this season. Um, we'll go on to our disappointment of the weekend section now. We've uh, run through the game of the weekend section a little bit quicker than we've done in the previous episode. And we'll start with you, Jamie. Um, disappointment in the Bundesliga. Uh, yes, it's the first, you know, real chink in the Union Berlin armour. You know, losing 5-0 against... Wow. Alonso's Leverkusen, by Leverkusen, you know, winless in six games. They haven't won since Alonso's first game in charge against Schalke. Um, and just looking at the goals themselves, just really sloppy, just naive goals you wouldn't really associate with a team like Union Berlin. You know, that they're built upon, you know, compact defence. They don't leak goals easily. And, and when you see some of the goals, they're just amateur in, in terms of the amount of space they're leaving behind. You know, it's classic Bundesliga goals, really. And you, you never associate that with Union Berlin, you know, because they've, they've sort of built their reputation on, you know, being that team that are so difficult to beat. And, you know, Leverkusen just cut through. Yeah, and Leverkusen, I think the worrying thing for me was the fact that Leverkusen are out of form, really. Like, mm. Oh, yeah, no, they're battling with relegation currently. And Alonso's, you know, had a great first game in charge against Schalke, but the form has dipped off since then, especially in the league, and they've not looked convincing. And. For Union Berlin to go there, you know, and lose five 0 it's a statement win for Leverkusen and something that could kickstart their season. But for Union Berlin, it's yeah a, a disappointing result because it, you can go and get beat by Leverkusen; they're still a good team. But the manner of the defeat, I think, yeah. will, will disappoint them really. And then you see, you know, Bayern tonight six one up against Werder Bremen. And you just think, is it is it that time of the season, you know, where they just you know take over the league? Yeah, and for me, my disappointment of the weekend um, was Chelsea. Uh, one nil loss only to Arsenal, so not a, a, a five nil loss like Union Berlin suffered, but a really poor performance from Graham, Pot- Graham Potter's men, and disappointing really because the start of Potter's tenure looked pretty encouraging, um, especially sort of the performance against Milan, especially at Stamford Bridge that looked very good. But obviously injuries haven't helped, especially to Rhys James. But it's worrying that Chelsea's attacking structure seems fairly dependent on a, a fullback, and it has sort of done for 12 months now. Whenever Rhys James has been absent, Chelsea have looked a far worse team, whether that's under Potter or under Thomas Ducal before him. Um, and in this game, Kai Havertz was not at the races. Same with Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. It was billed as the Aubameyang, you know, playing Arsenal again the first time since he left them in January. Um, and he failed to show up, really. Same with Havertz, and Potter's in a bit of a rut maybe obviously the loss to Brighton was a heavy one 4-1 this performance Chelsea just didn't seem like could ever get out there in half could sustain any you know periods of pressure Arsenal were all over them and Arsenal did play well but I don't think it's the, the best Arsenal have played this season really I'm not sure what your thoughts are on that um, but. yeah no it's probably not the best in terms of you know efficiency cutting through teams there was moments in the first half where you know Zinchenko picked up that inverted fullback position and, and 
did play through you quite easily. Um, but yeah, no, apart from that, I, I didn't think that they were anything particularly special. Um, but yeah, no, Chelsea just abject in, in, in terms of trying to build out from the back. That they were targeting that sort of Zinchenko zone in the first half with, with that isolation with Sterling, and it looked to get some sort of joy from that. You know, Havertz a few times got down the sides and had moments to square it to Aubameyang. And yeah, then that one was, was the, the, the one chance yeah. to imagine if that had gone in, maybe the, the game could have been turned. Yeah, the, the lack of quality from Havertz right now is uh, pretty alarming for you know a seventy-five million pound player. Uh, yeah, but I just I just think that the the persistence with that Jorginho uh, Loftus Cheek midfield is also not helping Potter whatsoever. Yeah, but I I think he's not helped by the fact that Kovacic can't string a, a game or two together without getting an ankle injury, and Golo Kante is probably may never play a game for Chelsea again based on his injury record, and you know he's been ruled out for even longer than was first imagined, and. It does just seem like Jorginho and Loftus Cheek are kind of the only options there. If you, unless he wants to trust I mean, Carney Chukwemeka with a, a deeper role, trust Zachariah more. Obviously, Zachariah played well in his debut, scored. Um, unless, unless you promote Casadai from the youth system, he's um, done well by all accounts in the Chelsea youth system um, since joining from Inter in the summer. But again, that's a, a step probably too far and. That midfield area was something that Chelsea really should have looked at more heavily than they did in the summer. It's something they should have looked at more heavily than they did the previous summer. Short-term loans, like the one for Zachariah, like the one from Sao Niguez, the one before, the year before, just aren't really good enough when you've got a midfield like Kovacic and Kanza, who are both very injury-prone. Loftus-Cheek, who would probably be better suited to a midfield three than a double pivot. And Jorginho, who has... You know he's definitely a good player, but at the times he can definitely be played through. Like Chelsea, if Jorginho plays well, then Chelsea play well. But at the same time, I don't think he's of the level to improve Chelsea as much as perhaps they should. And that's definitely an area that teams target when they play against Chelsea. You're looking at me like I've made a ridiculous statement there on Jorginho. I'm uh, imagining. Just, yeah, just saying he's a good player just sort of hurts me a little bit because. He's great for five yard nothing passes, but apart from that, yeah, I think br- he's brilliant player. Yeah. He's he's. He reads the game well. He's yeah, you know, no, interceptions. He, he yeah, understands the game well, but his body can't get him in the places to actually make a difference. Yeah, which I'd is, very which much makes agree it, that. Which makes him completely useless. I'd agree with the first thing you said then. Um, and it's, it's something that Chelsea should have looked at this summer, should have looked at the summer previous, and they haven't. So they're certainly paying for that. And I'm not quite sure that Chelsea can challenge near the top unless they fix that midfield area. Um, and the attack also looks pretty abject and... Read online that Loftus Cheek is completing the most take take ons of any Chelsea player with zero point nine, um, so not even hitting the one mark, um, and that's very worrying. Um, I wrote a piece for Football Transfers today on why Amari Hutchinson um, probably deserves a chance in the starting lineup now. Um, obviously signed from Arsenal and been sort of tearing it up in the youth system, was on the bench against Brighton, and it's probably time that he gets a chance because he is a player who picks the ball up from deep and drives with a lot of energy and speed and that's something that Chelsea seem lacking. They seem sort of lacking in any creative ideas really in the front line and something to fix. But yeah, my disappointment of the weekend will be Chelsea. We'll go on to our player of the weekend section now uh, and Jamie, do you want to kick us off with yours? Uh, yeah, I'm going to go for this sort of niche player um, not many people know about him. His name's Neymar, I think. Can't say I've heard of him, no. no uh, he plays for PSG. He finally got his big breakthrough. Mm-hmm. On Saturday when he got uh, you know a start against Lorient, um, he got a goal and an assist, which was you know, a, 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 a you know, really big moment for him. Um, you know, A tough away clash at Lorient to sort of 
stamp your authority down and say, hey, Tite, I'm Brazilian, take notice of me, you know, pick me for the Brazil squad, you know, fair play to him. Well, yeah, obviously Neymar is a, a world-class player who is going to the World Cup and you imagine will lead the Brazil charge and they are favourites for the World Cup. Um, and yeah, form hitting at the right time for him with yeah. the World Cup coming up. Yeah, so some of the dribbles in the game as well, you know, he was denied you know, another amazing assist by Mbappe, you know, he, he receives the ball and Mbappe and just sort of... I mean, he just trips over it for no reason. That's what? twice now this season that yeah. Mbappe's denied is, is an that, all-time it, assist from Neymar. Yeah, is that his agenda just going, I can't let Neymar have the limelight here for this <laughs> assist. I'm, I'm going to screw it up for him. Um, but it, it does seem like Neymar... There was a time last season where I thought, Neymar, is he done? Because it, physically he looked absolutely washed. He couldn't run. He couldn't move anywhere. He was, looking, he was getting to that sort of... Uh, at stage, Brazilians tend to get to in their career where they sort of pork up and go, yeah, no, nah, I'm, I'm I'm done for football now. <laughs> um, but obviously, with the World Cup, you know, coming, and maybe this is his last shot at winning it potentially. I think they've got every chance of winning this World Cup. Yeah, um, we'll, we'll discuss that on a future podcast, a World Cup predictions podcast. But yeah, it looks like Neymar's hit some form this season, yeah. and he's right in the shout with winning the Ballon d'Or based on how he started this season and. That's only good news for Brazil because he's going to be coming to the tournament in some real, real good form. Um, and my player of the weekend uh, is Philip Kostic. I mentioned it earlier in the podcast about how my player of the weekend came from the Juve Inter game. Um, and it's Juventus's left wing back, uh, Philip Kostic. Was he signed from Eintracht Frankfurt in the summer um, after a really successful time in the Bundesliga with Frankfurt? And he's been one of Juventus's sort of best performers this season so far and that was definitely shown against Inter um, he's a player who doesn't perhaps have the most variety in his game he is pretty one dimensional but he does that one thing very well and his deliveries on his left foot are very very good and that was shown in this game in the second half he was absolutely on fire the best player on the park by an absolute mile and yeah it was just incredible really got the assists for the goals and I think that you know Kostic is becoming such a key part of this Juventus side and that was seen I mean he was basically the reason why they won this game I think mm. uh, I've got a question for you if Allegri does go I mean it could. You know, we've talked about the potential turnaround but if he does go and a new manager comes in and doesn't play a back five is there space for him in the Juve setup? Yeah because I think Allegri's also played with a back four this season and Kostic has played as a left mid um, in a 4-4-2 I think he's toothless as a left mid but I th- yeah, I think that the the position isn't too different to playing as a wing back um, if you're playing with two up top. But I don't think he's done, um, and I think he's a very very good player. So obviously suits a five at the back with wing back system more so than he would a four at the back. Um, and I tend to agree that he'd probably be pushed forward rather than pushed back in terms of playing in a four from the wing back. So he'd move to a winger rather than to a full back. <laughs> Right, we'll go on to our Premier League talking points now then. Um, and do you want to kick us off with the first talking point from the English top flight? Uh, absolutely, son. So, obviously, Sunday saw Newcastle beat Southampton 4-1. A pretty, pretty horrid performance from Hassan Huttle's side. And, you know, because of that, you know, he's got to go, basically. He's gone, yeah? Yeah. He's disappeared from the, the training ground. He's never going to be seen again. Yeah. Um, obviously, yeah, Hassan Huttle sacked... Um, He's been linked with, sort of, well, I say linked with being sacked. I'm not quite sure if the right way of phrasing it, but he's been sort of rumoured to be one of the managers to be sacked for quite a while now. Obviously, mm. Southampton have had a couple of 9-0 losses um, over the course of the past few seasons, and he's always sort of flirted with the, the chance of being sacked. Um, 
And I don't quite think he's had the backing really from the board in terms of huge investment. But this, they seem to have had a blueprint of signing youngsters from other Premier League teams as academy. You've seen it with Man City with signing Lavia, Bazunu, Samadozi, um, sort of Chelsea by getting Livramento, obviously signing Brozio on loan last year. So they seem like they've got a blueprint for how they want to play. And it's the Southampton way of signing young players and embedding young players, whether that's through their academy or from other other teams' academies or whatever. But do you think that the decision was the right one to let him go? Uh, probably, yeah. I don't think that he could have taken the team any further. Yeah, I think it's kind no. of... It was the end, really. I, I, I think... Uh... You've always had that sort of that that blueprint you're on about, but you've had in there sprinkled in the uh, top senior quality, and I, I just don't think that they've had that this season. It's, I mean, it's it's Ward Prowse, and that's about it. Yeah, in, in terms of senior yeah. players. Yeah, and, and yeah, it, it does seem like they do rely on those youngsters, and that's fine. And you know, the youngsters they brought through have been are very talented. Mm. Um, you look at the, throughout their side, and you're thinking, yeah, you've got a, the start of a really nice team with young players coming through and, and being given a chance but at the same time you probably do need a few more senior heads in there to help mm. help those young players and guide them and I don't quite think they have the quality of those more experienced players um, in terms of displacing the youngsters I guess and the question really is is who they bring in to replace us Nathan Jones has been heavily linked Luton have allowed him to speak to Southampton but again I'm not quite sure if it's Sort of the right fit. Obviously, he left Luton to join Stoke, had a pretty poor time at Stoke, mm. and then rejoined Luton and done very well again. But that's on a shoestring budget with getting the most out of sort of players that probably shouldn't be playoff quality. But you know, he got them in the playoffs last year, and obviously, I'm not quite sure if that's uh, can translate to the Premier League when he didn't do as well at Stoke with a bigger budget and with better players. Mm, Stoke's quite a toxic sort of club right now, though. So I guess, I guess, yeah. Compared but, to Southampton. Yeah, I, I do think that you know Nathan Jones has the capacity to do very well, and I think he's done really well getting the most out of Luton's squads, which isn't full of quality. And in a better team like Southampton, he he could flourish. Um, it's just uh, you look at who Wolves have appointed recently, Lopetegui, you look at Villa appointing Unai Emery and Southampton are going to be in and around there with those teams mm. and the quality of manager they might be able to attract if, if it is Nathan Jones just isn't quite of the same level. Yeah, is it? yeah the, the pull factor isn't quite there compared to the other clubs um, in terms of quality and just you know size of club. You know, Southampton have been punching above their weight for, you know, as, 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 since they've come into the Premier League really and you know they've had a great time here. You know we all remember some of the great Southampton teams from the past. Of course, yeah. Yeah, you know, streets won't forget and all that. Um, but you know, I think this could be maybe the end of the run. What you think they're destined for relegation? Uh, I think they're certainly going to be scrapping the whole season. Whereas you know a team like Villa or Wolves, I could easily see you know after the World Cup break just you know flying up. Yeah, I, I agree with that statement. I'd have to agree because you look at Wolves, Leicester, Villa, who are right down there, and you think they've got the capacity to get a lot better than they've shown this season, whereas even with a new manager coming in, I'm not quite sure if Southampton have the ability to get a lot better than what they've shown under Hazen Hootel mm, yeah. um, this year. Uh, we'll move on to our second talking point in the Premier League then, and it's quite a simple one. It's is the Premier League title race a two-horse race um, right now? With Arsenal looking so good and Man City obviously good as ever, but you know the likes of Tottenham, Man United, Chelsea, and Liverpool sort of stumbling. Uh, I think it is. Yeah, yeah. You, you get sort of feelings and sort of vibes after you know certain wins, and I remember 
when City beat Chelsea in 1718 at Stamford Bridge when De Bruyne scored that winner everyone just suddenly thought yeah these these can win the title easily um, I'm starting to get that feeling that potentially Arsenal could or, or at least you know go all the way with City um, you know just just the feeling after the game you know the celebrations with Saliba and, and Gabriel sort of hugging each other you know, it, you know brought a little tear to my eye actually um, but yeah no, I, I think we, we sort of We've we take we've taken for granted that City are just gonna walk this league, you know, with Haaland just bagging goals every two seconds. But potentially, you know, we, we saw weaknesses there in that Fulham game. Only just got the win, ninety fifth yeah. minute winner from Haaland yeah. from the spot. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Leno almost saved the penalty as well. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the, yeah, the penalty itself was pretty unconvincing, and you know, Cancelo's got them sort of horror mistakes in him to you know just bundle over Harry Wilson for you know basically no reason because Edison's getting there, isn't he, with ease. Um, and I just think, yeah, I, I can feel a title challenge proper. Yeah, proper it's it's strange to think that Arsenal have managed to have such a turnaround this quickly. Obviously, the signings in the summer have helped. Um, but considering Gabi Jesus has been pretty unprolific, is that the word, uh, in front of goal well, in yeah, terms of wasteful with chances? Yeah, the stat is he's had the most big chances missed in top five leagues this season with 11. Yeah. And he hasn't scored in nine. But still, Arsenal are right there, yeah. right at the top of the league. So when he hits form and he starts scoring, which you imagine he will do at some yeah. point, then they're going to be even better. So, you know, I, I do believe that Arsenal will go right down to the wire with Man City this season, and you know they they could be the team to mm. end City's dominance really because, um, you know, other it's big teams a, around it's them become a farmers league. Basically. Yeah, the other yeah. big teams around them are, are stumbling and don't quite look at it really. Um, uh, it's also dependent on World Cup as well. I think you know Arsenal are at such a high right now in terms of momentum. Could it all come crashing down with you know a freak injury to Martinelli, Saka, Saliba? Um, is Gabby Jesus actually going? Yeah, Gabby Jesus and Martinelli both been called up. Yeah, I mean right now for me in terms of importance, it's probably Jesus, even though he's not scoring, and Saliba. If if one of them get injured for you know a sustained period of time, it could be lights out. Yeah, uh, and we'll go on to our final Premier League talking point then, uh, and it's a question which is, uh, what are the realistic expectations for Unai Emery at Aston Villa? Obviously, started his reign at Villa Park with a three-one win over Manchester United. Um, I mean, to me, the appointment was brilliant from Villa's perspective. Uh, slightly bizarre from Emery's perspective in terms of going from Villarreal, who he got to the Champions League semi-finals um, last season, to struggling Aston Villa but at the same time he's going back to the Premier League with all the money the Premier League have and all the money that Aston Villa have um, and a chance to rebuild his reputation in England which is not quite great because of his spell at Arsenal when he's been sort of deducted I guess to a stereotype of good evening which is completely unfair on his coaching style and how good a coach he is um, don't forget his PSG side were the most dominant I believe um, PSG side ever in terms of points um, when they won the league, and I uh, think that you know his Villarreal side were, were pretty special, and there's no reason why he can't achieve similar things with Aston Villa. I mean, I'd love to see him take them to Europa League and win another Europa League with a different team. That'd that be, would that'd be, be special. That would be special, but also uh, the Villa fans deserve that. I'm not sure. <laughs> but what are your thoughts on the appointment itself? Um, yeah, obviously, you know, in, in terms of 
managerial prowess. It's, it's more than Villa could have hoped for right now. I mean, they've had Dean Smith, Stephen Gerrard. It's definitely their best appointment for years and years since yeah. probably Martin O'Neill. But and that's it might be their yeah. best appointment in you know ten fifteen years. I mean, no disrespect. Actually, no, plenty of disrespect towards Dean Smith and <laughs> Stephen Gerrard. That they're not on on the same level in terms of coaching ability. And uh, I, I I didn't watch too much of the of the Man United loss and the the Villa you know impressive win. Um, but I liked how Leon Bailey was being used. Um, sort of not not as a right wing sort of. Getting isolated with the fullback because yeah, I think his one v one ability has certainly uh, been lacking this season. Not what it used to be. Yeah, definitely not. Um, you know, he was getting into really central areas, and you see for his goal, he switches over to the other side uh, when Watkins drops in deep and you know gets that run on, on Martinez, and he, he can't live with his pace. And in terms of this season itself, it will be interesting to see what Villa can achieve. Obviously, starting from quite a poor spot in the league um, after Gerrard's sort of failures this year I guess but they've got a really strong squad um, and a fair bit of depth in forward areas I'd like to say um, with the players that are available to an Emery so what do you think is a sort of realistic aim just for this season and then you sort of build upon it from in years to come Uh, well objective one is probably stay in the Premier League which I think they will do now they definitely will now Um, I can't see Emery going down with them uh, I think maybe maybe top ten, just a top ten finish. I mean, maybe the points total to sort of eighth and seventh place for them Europa League and Conference League spots, and maybe a bit too far now yeah. after so, such a poor start. But yeah, no, a, a sort of top ten finish would be, a, a, yeah, no, a, a decent decent. Especially given how tight it is in that bottom half. Yeah. If you put together a string of you know two or three wins in a row, you suddenly jumped up three or four places, mm. and so. Um, you know, there's definitely potential for Villa to, to climb at the table at an impressive rate with a coach as you know good as Unai Emery. We'll move on to our league gun talking points um, now, and we'll start with a question about Leon and his European football slipping away from their clutches yet again. They're now seven points off the Europa Conference League spot after a one-nil loss to Marseille, and. You know, Lyon are a big club in French football, but this is looking worrying in terms of their ability to get European football this year. Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, I just think, you know, a few seasons ago these were in the you know the semi-final of the Champions League, and now they can't. Well, I'm not saying they won't, but they're struggling to sort of even be close to conference spot right now. Um, and it's just sad to see, you know, that that sort of cohort of players. They're very talented, but right now it just seems they just can't seem to put, you know, get a string of performance together. Yeah, obviously Blanc came in and it's looked like he's arrested the slide a little bit. He's obviously picked up some, some good wins, but this was a loss to a Marseille side who have been pretty bang out of form themselves. Um, we spoke about that recently in the podcast, about how Marseille have sort of slipped into a a series of you know losses and draws, but mm, just been chucked out of the Champions League. As yeah, well. and and Leon, you know, to go, you know, lose to a, a Gigo header um, from a corner. It's bad defending from Dembele. Just loses his man. And um, interesting for us, we've noted how Blanc has been playing with a three at the back with wing backs um, and two strikers, a three-five-two, um, and how that's meant that Tete and, and Carl Tucker can be both haven't seen meaningful minutes and haven't started under Blanc's tenureship. Um, but he changed to a back four. 
but he still, you know, didn't play with wingers. Played with a midfield sort of diamonds um, with Kakare, Thiago Mendes, Alwan, Lepanon, and you're looking at that and you're thinking with a three-five-two with just wing backs and this formation with Pack in the midfield, he's just playing very, very narrow. And while it seems like it had worked originally, I don't think playing with so many central players mm. when you have the you know, outlets out wide in the Cherokees can play out there. You've got the Tetes, the Kartok or Cambys and you're just leaving them on the bench and you're playing with so many central players. It, I'm just I'm just not convinced personally that's the way to go. Oh yeah, no, offensively it's very uninspiring but I think just by, you know, Blanc's sort of reputation, I think in his mind he's just trying to just get his team as compact as possible defensively. It does make sense in that regard but I mean, I want to watch fun, exciting football. Um, you're, you're not going to get that and with that's Long what... Blanc, though, are you? <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, it would be sort of big for Leon if they missed out on European football again, because like you say, they were sort of regulars in the Champions League, but now it seems like they've fallen away from that and might not even get European football at all, which would be you know a huge disappointment for a squad um, as talented as Leon's, really. Uh, we'll move on to our second league on talking point then. Um and it's whether Lens can, you know, replace Lorient as the team challenging PSG. Obviously, PSG beat Lorient 2-1, um, as mentioned earlier. But Lens is now four wins in a row after Derby de Noir loss. Um, and yeah, they're looking very good, aren't they? Yes, they are. And I think perhaps the World Cup breaks maybe come at the wrong time for him because they're just sort of they seem to be peaking right now in terms of you know, the evolution of the team under Frank Hayes. Yeah, you know, a really you know, great win away from home against Angers this weekend, winning 2-1. And that now means they're only you know, five points behind PSG. And I think their lack of you know players going to the World Cup could really help them out in terms of that restart. Because I, I, think, I think it's going to be so hard to predict how teams start again, because it's basically the start of, of a new season uh, in, in January and, and late December. Um, and, and that PSG game against... Long comes on New Year's Day, and I think you know, depending on how PSG sort of handle the the World Cup, you know, whether they sustain any big injuries, and I, I think also no matter what, I feel like Messi and Neymar might just have like a a, a month's break because <laughs> I feel like that's just something they do after the World Cup. Yeah, I think that yeah, with PSG having so many players going to the World Cup with the players that they have at their disposal, I mean, because it's a you know mid-season World Cup players you know there is a chance that players will get injured um and there's no reason why that couldn't happen to PSG and obviously with Neymar and Messi they might go deep into the tournament and might take a few weeks off in terms of just having yeah, tournament yeah. football in their legs I could just so easily see him just saying I need to rest for a month because I'm not going to be anyway near it come you know the restart of the season and I think you know that tie that on New Year's Day could be hugely important in terms of the momentum for the title race, you know, they they win that, you know, they're right up with them. Yeah, I'd love to see Lawrence just get in the Champions League anyway. That would be brilliant mm. to see. Um, and the form they're showing right now means there's no reason why they can't really. Um, and we'll go from the top of the table there to the bottom of Ligue 1. And a, and a first half thriller at the bottom of Ligue 1. Ajaccio winning 4-2 against Strasbourg, having gone 2-0 down. Um, pretty spectacular comeback. Obviously 2-0 down after 17 minutes and they scored four before half-time. So, uh a great comeback, really, for a team that are now up to 17th, leapfrogging Strasbourg in the table. A massive six-pointer right down at the bottom, wasn't mm. it? Yeah, no, this is Ajaccio's first first season in the league, isn't it? So 
you know, even if they do go down this season, it's these sort of memories, these sort of four-two uh, Strasbourg wins, where they'll look back and think, you know, we we had good moments this season. But um, you know, the, the with this win, they do sort of keep. No, they're not relegated yet, but they they certainly you know put themselves in the fight to to stay up. Obviously, the two of the goals they scored, both penalties from Bailey, who also got a nice assist with a, a lovely little move down the left from himself and a, mm. and a cross in. Um, and I think Ajaccio are one of those teams right down at the bottom of League League One that, that could survive. There's obviously going to be a relegation dogfight, like you imagine, and it's the the kind of game that we wouldn't perhaps ordinarily pick out in our you know talking points from League One, but. We thought, you know, shed some light on on the bottom of the table. Mm. The teams that don't quite get it, and it's obviously nice. Obviously, Strasbourg. We covered a little bit on Kevin Gamero's, you know, volley from left back a couple of weeks ago, and he scored again here with a lovely little goal. Mm. Um, but nice to see, you know, surprising for Strasbourg to lose this game after looking, you know, good last season. Um, but this year, they've, you know, nowhere near really, hitting the yeah, same. Really the pace, nowhere yeah. near hitting those same levels. It's almost like them and Lorient have sort of swapped places in the table and, and form wise really um, so they'll be looking to turn their season around whereas Ajaxio yeah like you say a massive win and, and maybe that kick starts their season to survival this year mm. I'd love to see that because you know, they are just a plucky underdogs aren't they love an underdog story don't we eh Cammy? we do indeed we do indeed we'll go on to our Serie A talking points then the third of Europe's top five leagues um, and we'll start with the man who saves AC Milan all the time, Olivier Giroud. Um, and the question is, can you know Clutch Giroud keep saving Milan's title hopes? Obviously scored an outrageous acrobatic effort to beat Spezia, then took a shirt off and got sent off for a second yellow. So I just pretty that. pretty foolish <laughs> from Giroud himself. I think he sort of just completely forgot that he'd already been yellow carded in the moment, got caught up in it. And I think uh, just seeing his face afterwards, he's like, oh God, I forgot I was on a yellow card. Um, so he'll obviously miss the next game, but you know he scored again and he's you know becoming so, so good. And he, people are finally realising the quality that he has. Mm. But I think this this also throws up another issue of you know it is against seventeenth place Spezia that they shouldn't have to be relying on you know a clutch Giroud moment to sort of bail them out. Um, and I think we saw that earlier on in the season against Empoli where they were you know drawing with you know two minutes to go and they scored two late goals. Um, it does seem like they're sort of trying to hang on to Napoli right now just by their coattails and. You know, them coattails are pretty pretty slippery right now. <laughs> well put, but yeah, like you say, Napoli are just so imperious right now, so it's you know, it's not a surprise to see a team struggling to keep up with them. But at the same time, this is kind of what Milan did last year, relying on late goals, um, to win games, often relying on the likes of Tonali, Giroud, Rafael Liao, um, and they got the job done and they got the wins and it's ultimately what won them the league ahead of Inter and I know Napoli are looking very good this year, but Milan keep winning these games, keep grinding out wins in fashions that perhaps they don't deserve to get wins. Perhaps you know Spezia deserved a point, and you know conceding a late goal was unfortunate. But at the same time, Milan score late goals, and it's what won them the league last year. And there's no reason why if Napoli have a, a drop off, which doesn't quite seem likely right now, but with if they get to the latter stage of the Champions League and start prioritising the Champions League instead of the league, perhaps there is a drop-off in Serie A and that's when these sort of late points that Milan pick up 
become so vital in the title race. So they're definitely not out of it yet, I'd say. No, no, not quite. And uh, our next Serie A talking point uh, is a question whether Allegri is going to have a remontada um, after the World Cup. Obviously, Juventus, we spoke about we spoke about it in the, my game of the weekend and Kostic being my player of the weekend, but obviously a 2-0 win over Inter. Um, Allegri has faced a lot of criticism, um, seems to answer a few of those critics for sure, but on the flip side, and Zaghi um, obviously couldn't get a title over the line last year when they probably looked favourites to do so, and this year, suffering a result like this, along with defeats such as the one to Udinese, they're just not quite at the level where you imagine they should be for a team of their quality. Obviously, in seventh place, not in the Euro- European spaces at the moment. Um, they've won eight games, but they've lost five, which is, you know, not what you expect from a team filled with as much quality as Inter have. So, is Allegri? Uh, I don't think Ale- I think Allegri's fine with his job, but Inzaghi might now be the one out of those two fearing for his job. I know they obviously. What a good streak before this Juventus um, loss. Obviously, had won four in a row before then um, in the league. But it's just frustrating, isn't it, for to see you know performances like this happen. And you know they've got Atalanta at the weekend, and then they've got Napoli as the first game back from the World Cup break. So those two games, if they decide to stick with Inzaghi throughout the World Cup break, are going to be pivotal whether they want to even get into the Euro- European spaces. Yeah, I think that Atalanta game on Sunday is huge for his job because if they lose it, you think yeah, he might be going? I think I think he could go because there's managers on the market as well. Tuchel yeah. and Pochettino are right there. Yeah, I, I think I think that this this Inter regime, I, I, I don't think they're too shy of you know pulling the trigger, especially with the way it's going. Um, and the World Cup is like we've said it's a mini pre-season you've got you know, a month and a half to just really embed your ideas into the side for those players who are still there training um, and it, I think if they want to keep I mean not, not even t- I mean, they're out of the title race now let's, let's, let's get that clear just European hopes alive I think they might, if they lose to Atalanta on, on Sunday night I think they might have to pull the trigger yeah and obviously you know, Tuchel and Lukaku could be reunited if Tuchel got that job, and that obviously mm. doesn't spell good things. But Tuchel and Pochettino have both regularly played three at the back systems, and Inter obviously play at three at the back at the moment. A lot of their players are suited to that. Whether you look at Gerson's at left wing back, you look at Dumfries at right wing back, like they have players suited to playing a back three with wing backs, and those two managers, you know, have used that. Whether that be at Spurs or Pochettino or at Chelsea for Tuchel, so. And it's, but someone will snap those two managers up mm. quickly if, if you know, it, you could wait too long and those two might be gone and then into looking, oh, we've, there's not really any options that are any better than Zaghi. So maybe it's a, a case of we've got to do it now because we might pay for it otherwise. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, like you say, the World Cup break gives a new manager, if they were to come in, you know, a, a perfect amount of time to start working on, you know, plans and systems with, with a new team. And yeah, if they lose that Atalanta game, that could be curtains for Inzaghi, mm. I think, as well. I mean, even the Bologna game tomorrow, huge pressure. Um, and we'll go on to our final Serie A talking point then, and it's about Udinese and how their European hopes, unfortunately... Um, Slip it away. Yeah, they, might, they they look like they could be over with, with teams looking good around them. Even Inter aren't looking great, but, you know, they're still above them in the table. And obviously, Udinese start the season so well. We're in the top three, um, beat Inter 3-1, beat Roma 4-0. Um, but they're now without a win since the 3rd of October, down to 8th. They drew 1-0 with Lecce on Friday night. Um, and it seems like 
their chances of you know getting European football could could be over. I mean, just prior to recording this, they just drew one all with Spezia as well. I mean, it, more more drawings than an artist. Yeah, <laughs> is, that, is that what footy, footy banter lads say? Uh, potentially, potentially, yeah. but yeah, drawing against these teams at the bottom of Serie A um, isn't really what you need when you're trying to pick well, yeah, up it's results. Not, it's, it's not sustainable if you want to yeah. you know, get in the Champions League. And it's league. strange because they were, you know, the giant killers at the start of the year beating yeah. Inter and Roma and then, you know, facing against the lesser teams in Serie A and you come up with pop problems. So it's um, worrying for Udinese. But at the same time, they would have come into the season and taken a mid-table finish, I imagine. So if that happens, you know, thanks to a good start to the season, it tails off slightly, then, you know, it'd be disappointing because there would have been aspirations of European football. But at the same time, mid-table would be probably what they expected coming in and wouldn't be, you know, a bad season if that happens. You know what I just thought? You know the amount of Watford players in this Udinese team? Yeah. They're, they're doing what Watford used to do. Which is? Start really well and then just slowly but surely just creep into mid-table and just stay there. And do you remember when they had Pereira and Delefeu just hooping for them back in the day? You know, they've got them now. It's the, it's the, it's it's the, the history, history of the Watford History of the Watford. <laughs> they always go to mid-table after a good start. <laughs> Right, we'll go on to our Bundesliga talking points then and we'll start with um, Jamal Musiala and whether you know he's looking like he's going to be Germany's sort of main hope for a successful World Cup campaign. Obviously the World Cup is, is creeping ever closer um, and Musiala is in some incredible form. Um, scored against Hertha at the weekend, scored against Werder Bremen just before recording this um, to make it nine goals and four assists in the league this season and... You know, he's been integrated into the side by Hansi Flick when Flick was at Bayern. Um, and now Hansi Flick looks like he's trusting him for the German national team, giving him starts, um, sort of against England in the last international break. And yeah, it looks like Musiala could be the starter for Germany and could be the reason why they perhaps go deep in the tournament, maybe. Yeah, I mean, right now in terms of, you know, Germany's hope for the for the World Cup, no one's really given him giving them a chance yeah. in terms of you know really going deep into the mm-hmm. tournament to, to yeah. a, a semi-final or a final and you know could Musiala be the talisman to really you know take him deep into the tournament yeah obviously Leroy Sane is also you know his Bayern teammates also enjoyed a, a very good start to this season unlike Serge Gnabry who's not quite um, hit the same levels as Sane and Musiala um, Kai Havertz mentioned it earlier he's yeah, very, very out of form at Chelsea so you imagine that Sane Musiala sort of nailed on to be in the the starting, the preferred front line. But obviously Musiala has been playing mostly off the left, actually for Germany, um, rather than through the middle in a ten row. Um, so perhaps Sane plays on the right. You have Thomas Müller in the ten row, Musiala on the left, and then you perhaps have Makoko maybe given a chance up front. Makoko a great shout, actually. You know, young, but in form. Yeah, you know, dynamic. Form. Dynamic. Compared to Nabry right now, who's sort of, hmm, sort of petering out almost. You know, he, he had that world class season in, in the bubble. You know, maybe did we all get fooled by the bubble once again? <laughs> could it could you know, could easily be the case. But um, yeah, Makoku could could be right in there. Um, and we're going to our second Bundesliga talking point, and it's about Bayer Leverkusen, and they're obviously emphatic five 0 win over Union Berlin. But we've been here before. We've been fooled by. 
Xavi Alonso's men before after their 4 0 win over Schalke, and we've been pretty disappointed with them since because they've got a very talented squad. Um, but Alonso definitely played on the counter attacking transition side of his team, which definitely suits the likes of Diaby um, and Fringpong. Um, Mitchell Backer played very well in this game as well, and it sort of suits him. Um, so it is a question of whether this is Leverkusen's season being sparked into life or we've been let down. It's going to be another false dawn, I guess, for, for Leverkusen. What are your thoughts on... Obviously, we've, we've spoken about the game itself, but Alonso has got to find some consistency because it's all well and good beating Schalke 4-0, Nuremberg Berlin 5-0, but if the results in between those games aren't good, then they kind of count for nothing, those wins, don't they? Yeah, I mean, and some of the, some of the results as well in between them were pretty horrid when you look at them on paper um, you know obviously now well, once again we're talking about potentially World Cup coming at the wrong time you know they've got two two games left before before the break again you know I mean Eintracht Frankfurt 5-1 beating Leverkusen pretty horrid stuff Le- to they're read. just inconsistent and yeah. they need to find some form and, and perhaps that is the problem for Leverkusen obviously they've you know lost 3-0 against Porto as well and it's just finding consistency that Alonso really needs in his side. I mean, losing losing 2-0 to, to Leipzig is, you know, not a bad result. Leipzig is obviously a good team. Um, but, you know, drawing against Club Bruges when you sort of need to win that game in the final Champions League group stage um, game. And, you know, they've got a few fixtures coming up that you'd hope that they'd pick up wins. But, you know, Leverkusen are the... You know, inconsistent side that we can't really rely on right now in the Bundesliga, so it's hard to judge what's going to happen next for them. Yeah, if it was any other season, I'd say Leverkusen can easily go and win both of them games against Cologne and Stuttgart. Um, but this is Xabi Alonso's Leverkusen, where you, you never know what, what you're going to get, yeah. to, to quote Forrest Gump. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we'll move on to our final Bundesliga talking point on that note. Um, and it's all about Wolfsburg being one of the informed teams in the Bundesliga. Um, a team without many, you know, individual Star stars. Players, yeah. It's um, quite, a, you know, Maximilian Arnold's still there holding down the fort midfield. Riddle Baku, very promising talent, uh, right back. Um, and the Emecha brothers, of course, in central midfield and up front. Um, but they're not quite a team that stand out in terms of having one superstar player or even a player that's of insane quality perhaps like a Marcus Turan perhaps for Gladbach but you know unbeaten now since the 18th of September um, they beat Dortmund 2-0 on Tuesday night just before um, recording this they're now up to 8th place um, so I think Wolfsburg are certainly going under the radar obviously 8th place is, is nothing completely special but they had a poor start to the season and now making up for that so it's encouraging to see them, you know, climb back up the table, back towards European places, which is where you'd expect Wolfsburg to be as a club who, you know, typically have been pretty decent in the Bundesliga. Yeah, no, it's it's hard to really say whether this is their, you know, purple patch in terms of form, or or was it just a horrid, horrid start to the season? Maybe the truth is somewhere in the middle. And that's why they're sort of bouncing out into that eighth place because you know they haven't lost you know in, in so long, but they also started the season you know winless in the first five. So I mean it, it might be another case of Bayer Leverkusen where you just think uh, what what Wolfsburg's going to turn up right now. And we've got a sort of clear idea right now of what, which they've maybe turn up. you know they've maybe fixed things the issues yeah. at the start of the year and looked like a consistent side. Whether they challenge for European places or not, 
Um, Remains quite, to be seen. Yeah, I'm not quite yeah. sure if they have the, the quality in their side to do it, but they've certainly got a structure that works. And obviously we've seen Uli in Berlin throughout the season look very good without having a star name in there. So maybe Wolfsburg are, are going to be a little bit similar. And uh, finally, on to you know, the, the last of Europe's top five leagues, La Liga, as we always round off with, um, and the three La Liga talking points that we've got this week. And the first one is about how Raya Vallecano have sort of blown the title race wide open. Um, obviously, they beat Real Madrid 3-2 um, at the weekend, and they're looking very good themselves, Raya Vallecano. We'll sort of talk about the consequence of that result, but Raya Vallecano now to eighth. They've beat Real Madrid and Sevilla this season and joined with both Atletico Madrid and Barcelona. So they're certainly being the giant killers in La Liga. They've become that team and worrying, I think, for Real Madrid to, to lose this game 3-2. They've shown that maybe they're not you know, invincible. They are beatable. Um, and a surprise, you wouldn't have picked Raya Vallecano as the fixture on the, the list to perhaps conquer Real Madrid. Um, but they did, 3-2. I feel like this loss has been coming now. You know, the, the loss against Leipzig in the Champions League and the draw against Girona, it was sort of a matter of time before they really got caught cold in the league, and, and they certainly did on Monday night. They, they just didn't really look... It, it didn't look like, like Ancelotti had really you know, got them prepped for this game at all. I, I noticed during the game as well, the little bits I watched of it, was Ferland Mendy was uh, like the, the, the pressing trigger for, for Vallecano, and they looked to always jump on him straight away. Maybe they didn't rate his... You know, ability to play out of the press uh, you know, as much as other other Real Madrid players, which you know, is probably a fair point. Yeah, I'd agree that it's not his best attributes potentially. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's, it's before the midweek games. You know, this result has meant that Barcelona are now top, and obviously after El Clasico, you'd perhaps say that Real Madrid were looking in very decent nick to go and win La Liga, and it didn't look like Barcelona up to scratch, especially considering Barcelona's you know form in Europe, but mm. and the injuries as well. Yeah, um, but now, you know, obviously Kunde and Araujo have both suffered injuries and Barcelona have been stunted by that. But, you know, Real Madrid obviously have lost Benzema at times, so that's obviously not helped them. Rodrigo obviously missed a fairly big chance later on in this game that, that could have, you know, equalised for Real Madrid. It was fired in pretty hard at him, but he did blaze it over from about, you know, f- four or five yards yeah, out. If, if you're going to miss it, miss it by a little bit less. <laughs> you know, miss by, you know, just skim the crossbar or something like that. And don't don't put it near that apartment where Fede, well, Fede did put it into the you know, the balcony. But I, I just think Rodrigo starting consistently at striker is obviously going to be a problem. Um, with, with, with Benzema, I, yeah, being I just couldn't injured. imagine him as being a yeah. regular. Like he's a very good player, and I think that this year has the potential for him to to hit the heights that you know Vinicius has shown. Mm. But he probably needs to be playing on the flank rather than through the middle, yeah. really, because it doesn't really suit his strength. I don't think. And it also means Asensio's getting consistent minutes, which I, I don't really like. Do you think he's not quite up? on par with the rest of yes. this Madrid side in terms yes. of quality then yeah. I, I think he does stick out like a sore thumb at times I mean four years ago if I said that there'd probably be you know, guns to my head saying what what are you on about but I just, I just think he sort of, I think he's certainly petered out in terms of his progression the injuries uh, haven't helped at yeah, all yeah injuries yeah but I, I, I just think he has stagnated as a player and Ancelotti relying on him to you know deliver the goods is sort of Perhaps causing this this sort of I still think he's a stagnation. Good, I still think he's a very good player, but there was a links with a move away this summer. I think Milan were linked, um, and Liverpool bizarrely were linked. But I think yeah, maybe a move away is something he needs as a player to just sort of 
kickstart things and he is always going to be a bit part player still at Madrid whether that even though he's getting minutes he's not going to be the first choice um, and maybe that's what he needs in his career right now at this stage to to be the main man at a team maybe Milan still need that right winger and maybe he becomes that guy perhaps but you know we'll see um, and we'll move on to the next talking point in La Liga and it's Osasuna being the you know, surprise overachievers um, they're up to fifth in the league and looking very, very good. Um, surprising, again, a team on a, a small budget, you know, bettering the likes of a team like Sevilla, who are right down in the dumps um, in La Liga. Um, and, you know, the Spanish top flight has sort of had that this season with Betis and Real Sociedad, Athletic Club, all looking very good, and Osasuna right up there with them. Um, obviously, as a recording, they're going to be playing Barcelona tonight. We don't know the result of that. But, you know they've looked so good this, so far this season, and there's no reason why that couldn't continue. I don't think. Yeah, I mean they've taken a point off of um, off Real Madrid at the Bernabeu. So you know, at home to Barcelona, could easily you know get the win. Um, and I, I think you know Moy Gomez getting that that move to to um, to Osasuna uh, fr- from Villarreal. He's sort of forgotten man there. You know, showed. Early glimpses of you know a, a really great talent there, but sort of got swept aside by Emery. Um, there were a lot of options, I think, to Emery yeah. in, in yeah. sort of his position, and maybe he wasn't quite at the level of players that had displaced him. I think. Well, I mean, what, what we're saying about Moigoes is easily applicable to Asensio. Get that move away. Yeah. Revitalize your your career because yeah, since he, since he's gone to Osasuna, he's been you know along with Jimmy Avia, you know. The, the star player. Yeah, and we mentioned it with Wolfsburg not having many standout names, and also sooner a little bit similar, obviously, Avia and, and Moy Gomez, the, the two players who sort of fired them to where they are in La Liga. But yeah, they're also a team who aren't blessed with star names that everyone will know about. They're not. There's no real household names in the Osasuna side, but yeah, they're getting the job done, and that's what really matters. Um, and it's nice to see La Liga this year, although it's the league as a whole, the quality isn't and what it used to be. Isn't what it used to be, and I think it's perhaps dropped to the fifth best league in Europe's top five league, yeah, which is which is yeah. probably why we're talking about it last each week mm. in the talking points. Um, but you know, it's nice to see these storylines emerging, mm. such as Osasuna, such as Rai Vallecano, you know, doing well, which is always nice to see. Um, and our final La Liga talking point then is about Atletico Madrid again. We were sort of scrambling for a final talking point in La Liga, um, and lads are on Atletico um, still sort of lacking in attacking areas um, a one or draw with 16th place Espanyol um, they went 1-0 down and Espanyol were down to 10 men after 28 minutes and it took a João Felix equaliser to draw the game 1-0 and obviously playing against 10 men for the best part of you know 35 minutes um, with you know added time included in it you expect Atleti to have the quality to beat Espanyol even against 11 men so with 10 men you certainly expect them to win that game and, and they couldn't and it's just more worrying signs for a team who you know out of Europe completely after finishing last in their Champions League group mm. and you know a fourth in La Liga and you know there's a, they will probably finish in the Champions League places this year because their squad is very talented but there's no guarantee that happens because there are teams around them who are looking good like Osasuna like I mentioned like Rio Vallecano um, yeah, I mean they've got a real problem in terms of just things to fight for this season. Now, I mean they could maybe have a cup run in a Copa del Rey, but apart from that, it's just. You'd imagine if they'd finished third in the Champions League group, like a Europa League run would have been a thing to aim for. Yeah. But finishing last in the group just completely 
negates that and obviously we've seen reports that because they're out of Europe completely they might be forced to sell up to four players in January which include mm. Carrasco, DePaul um, and Jao Felix himself so Cunha as well wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. those are, I couldn't remember the last one yeah. but yeah so it's you know there's four players there who are all very talented and have featured a fair bit this season and they might be forced to sell them because they're you know, a couple of their only really sell- sellable assets mm. just because they're not going to have enough money because of their failures in Europe. So Atleti are in a bit of a hole right now and, you know, Simeon will stay probably, but I'm no, not sure it'll, it'll, right it'll never be sacked. He'll leave of his own accord, but it's, it's certainly not not the season they were hoping for. I mean, the, the title winners two seasons ago and now sort of petering out in, in fourth place. Yeah, I had them as favourites as well last season to win to you know retain m- retain the title. I remember writing a piece you about it and how you um, bloody idiot. And how um if they'd signed Bruno Gimaraes um in the Ooh. summer like they were linked with, yeah. how that would have made them favourites to retain the title. I remember writing a piece about that and I mean I still believe that would have been, you know, a great signing for them as shown by his form for Newcastle, but Atleti have stagnated and gone backwards since that stage and now look like a team devoid of confidence and devoid of a lot of creative spark in the forward line and maybe a refresh is what they need but I just can't see them like say making a change of managerially or you know fundamentally changing the transfer strategy or you know the, the strategy on the pitch from Simeone mm. I can't see him changing his ways and jaws of Espanyol might be a sign of things to come yeah at, at what point do the fans you know finally reject Simeone as manager is it maybe at the end of this season if they don't finish in the Champions League places potentially that might be the final thing if you go out in the yeah. Champions League finishing fourth in your group um, in not a particularly hard group mm. it wasn't like they were facing the biggest teams in Europe in that group you know by Leverkusen Porto and Club Bruges like that's not a hard group yeah. if you look at that any other team in Europe's thinking you know there's some good teams there but we should be getting through in this and Atleti should have been thinking that and they finished last so I think if, yeah, if they finish out of the Champions League places having had that Champions League campaign it might be time the fans finally say yeah this is it for enough us enough is enough yeah potentially yeah. <laughs> Um, we'll go on to our guest the baller section now then. Um, Jamie's very excited for this. Um, obviously, last week's absolute disaster of, I mean, I just froze basically. I didn't have a Scooby. Yeah, obviously I got a point last week and Jamie didn't, which means it's now 1-0 in the guest the baller standings. Um, we've talked about talking points and so now it's time to have a little bit of fun with a little bit of a quiz at the end. The guest the baller round, if you've not... You know, listened before. Um, we'll each pick a baller. We'll list some clues for for who they might be, and the the other person's got to try and guess it. Um, so, do you want to read your clues aloud first, or shall I? Uh, you can go first. I will read out my clues for you. Okay, yes. go on, hit me. Right, clue number one. I have played with Rui Costa. Oh my! God. Different era. Okay. Casemiro and Rafael. Rafael, just. Silver. The United one. Who knows, mate? Okay. Uh, I have appeared in the FIFA World Pro XI and I left one of my previous clubs as public enemy number one. Right, let me think. Obviously, it's got to be a current player as, as the rules dictate. Um, wow, this is slightly different era to the one I was expecting. Um, I'll go with the first guess because I kind of have to. Based on actually no, Rafael wouldn't have been with Ronaldo in his first spell. That would have been my first guess. I have first guess Cristiano Ronaldo. You have three guesses. Uh, it is not Cristiano Ronaldo. Okay, I didn't think it was, but the Rui Costa and Casemiro lined up. I'm very stumped here. Um, 
it's really testing my knowledge of Rui Costa's clubs. Um, I can only really think that it's going to be a Portuguese player or someone who played for Milan, but I can't really think of anyone who came through Milan in the late noughties who would have played with Casemiro and Rafael. It's just a random, very random three players. Um, and I've been pretty stumped by it this week, and I wish I hadn't because I was looking forward to this guest ball and you've... I haven't ruined it. You've done me in with some hard, some hard clues here. Um, Good, because last time it was a walk in the park for you. Lucas Paqueta, about two seconds in. Yeah, this is the complete other end of the spectrum. The duality of man, eh? Right, I, I could spend ages trying to get this, but I've got no idea who this is going to be, and I, I don't think I'm going to get, so I'm going to have to give up. You're giving up? No, yeah. not, a, not a final guess? No, I've got... I've just, I've got I just, just don't a, know... Any r- player. Three, two, one. I... I I can't think of anyone who any would. football. They can't even think of any football player. Uh, no, right now, no football players are coming to my mind. Um, is it uh, Gonzalo Higuain? No. Just... You have lost. Yeah. But it was another Argentinian player. Yeah. It was another Argentinian player who's played for Real Madrid. It was Angel Di Maria. Yes, it was. Yeah, that was never going to come to my mind. Right, so he, he played with Rui Costa at Benfica. Yeah. Casemiro at Real Madrid. Madrid. Rafael. Rafael at United, United for one season. Yeah. And, and do you remember when he left United? Do you remember the, the chance? Eh? I don't remember him ever being public enemy number one after leaving Man United. We absolutely despise him. Yeah, well, that was, you know, I guess, poor for me, but I think my um, lack of knowledge of football before. Before your time. Before my time has cost me that. I did think Rui Costa was at Benfica, but for some reason I didn't really pursue that, and um, that cost me in the end. But mm. that's, what happens, out, eh? that's what happens um, when you've you know, got a when you're... quizzing as hard as Gesta Boulder, I guess. Yeah. Um, so now it's your turn. It's tough, it is really tough. Yeah. Um, right. Come my on, clues, I, can, I can take the lead. Yeah, here. my clues are far considerably easier, oh, I believe. Shut up. Um, but the first clue is I've played with Ander Herrera. Furlong Mendy and Matthias Delict. I played in four different European leagues in my career, and I was my team's top goal scorer in the league last season. It's not Tammy Abraham because you used that clue last time. I'm just ticking off. It's not Tammy Abraham in my head. Ander Herrera, Furlong Mendy. For a second, I was thinking Paul Pogba, but no. That is just useless. I have played in four different European leagues. Why is it useless? Is it, wait, is it four of the top five? or is it We're just four different European leagues in my career. Is it four of the top five? They're, it's not all, not all four of them are in the top five leagues. Okay. Or are they? I don't know. Oh. oh, got it. Who is it? It is Memphis Depay. It is Memphis Depay. Good shout. Yay! He takes the lead. Woo! Um... I love when it all just comes together in just a moment of absolute brilliance. Um, yeah, well, well done. You got it right. I'm still annoyed at my close. Wait, wait, I was my team's... It was the Pine top goal scorer last season. In the league, yeah. Him and Aubameyang were joint overall, but he was a top scorer in La Liga with 12. Played in four different European leagues, La Liga, Premier League, Ligue 1, and then Eredivisie with PSV. And nice. then... Nice. Herrera at United, Fulhamundi at Lyon, and Delict with the national me, team. What made me think that then? I've, I've started thinking Dutch forwards and then Bosch and Herrera at 14 15, Lyon. Wow. Well, well done, mate. You take the lead and guess the baller. Congratulations. Get in. But, you know, 
as happened last last time you took the lead, I levelled it back the week after. So it's, you're it's by no means yeah, safe. It's a game that sure. ebbs and flows, and let me tell you, it's gonna keep on ebbing and keep on flowing. That is for sure. Well, thank you very much, everyone, for listening to this week's episode of the Bat to Kill podcast. Unfortunately, next week we won't be having a review episode um, because someone that's not me on the podcast is uh, having the, the privilege of going to Lisbon to watch Benfica play, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, I'm having the privilege of you know watching Benfica, you know, one of the informed teams in Europe right now. You know, we, we don't really get to talk about them much, you know, because we're the top five league specific, but, you know, they're just top of the group. Beat uh, PSG on a sort of weird technicality. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it'd be, it'd be great to see you know Enzo Fernandez you know play in in the flesh for the first time. You know, yeah, a great prospect, a great bloke. It'd be great to see him. Yeah, obviously. So because of that, um, Jamie won't be back from Lisbon until later in the week. So we've decided to um, postpone, I guess, the review for the final game week across Europe before the World Cup. But instead. We're going to you know, have a World Cup preview episode for you. Um, we're going to review all the groups, who we expect to go through in each group, players we're you know, looking forward to watching at the World Cup, um, some anecdotes with teams and that kind of thing, and obviously like our favourites for the tournament, our predictions that we've got. Um, so that'll be coming to you next week instead of the review, and then we'll be having weekly episodes reviewing the World Cup action. Hopefully, that will we'll be filming that on a, uh, on a Monday or a Tuesday and then releasing, uh, providing sort of analysis and insight into each week of the World Cup rather than sort of each game week. Uh, we'll do it each week and sort of delve into what happened in the week um, since the previous episode. Um, so looking forward to it. It should be a, a good month of World Cup action. And uh, I don't know if you're looking forward to it. I'm guessing you are as well. Um, yeah, yeah. Just, you know, the, the thought of watching World Cup games in... Yeah, you know, the, the cold winter, the, the, the gloomy nights. It's not quite as fun as in the summer. No, but... no. But yeah, the, it's going to be a weird adaptation period in in the first week or so. But you know, eventually I'll get over it and get used to you know singing Mariah Carey while watching England. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, well, that's it for this week's episode of the Back to Go podcast. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll catch you next time. <laughs>